My grandfather told me that he lived in very uncertain times. And he told me of how he lived in Kuala Lumpur during the 60s. And one afternoon, his son, my uh, Saku, his uh, third son, was supposed to be at rugby practice that afternoon. And that day, his son called him in the office and said, Oh, coach said that there won't be rugby today. We're going home early. They said there's trouble coming. So my grandfather was very puzzled. He drove home early from the office, I suppose. In those days, you can do that sort of thing. And uh, went to pick up his son and drove home again. And later that very same evening, just a few hours after they had taken that very road, they heard that the racial riots had started and they had stopped people on that very same road that they were on a few hours ago and were pulling people out of the car and murdering them. And uh, my, remember when my grandfather tells me that story, he always tells me, boy, he always calls me boy, right? Boy, we lived in very uncertain times. And I think what he was trying to say was, in those days, you didn't know what was going to be the rule. Was there going to be law and order? Was there going to be bloodshed or anarchy? Was there going to be peace and justice? Or was there going to be murder? I think that that is the issue that we are dealing with here as we look at today's passage. What is the ultimate reality? Is there peace, order, justice, or is there chaos, anarchy, lawlessness, where evil men rule? Well, today it begins in uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, and I think that as we read this passage, I think for us who are accountants, maybe, like I was, or engineers, we find it very hard to understand this passage because we just want the facts. But as we look at this passage, don't just look at the facts, but look at how it's actually communicated to us. Because as we learn how it's communicated to us, we hear more of what God wants us to hear in the scripture. So in verse 1 it says, When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage in all Israel, became alarmed. Now this links directly back to uh, the previous verse in the last chapter, where we know, if you look at this map up here, for those of us who have gotten, I think you have to click it once. <clears throat> yep. We remember that Abner was murdered in Hebron. And we know three very important facts about his murder. First of all, it was Joab, uh, King David's commanding officer who stabbed Abner in the stomach out of revenge and out of ambition. The second thing that we know very clearly also was that King David had nothing to do with his death. So if you remember last week, <clears throat> the phrase that kept being repeated over and over again was Abner kept coming to and fro to David and he kept coming to and fro in peace. So look at verse 21. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a compact with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then David's men and Joab returned from the raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron, because David had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Then Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived and was told that Abner son of Ner had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. Okay, so that's the second fact that Abner, as a representative of Ishbosheth, 
and King David were at peace. They were at peace now. This was the stage of their negotiation. And the third thing we know is, at the end of the last chapter, David publicly and openly declared that he had nothing to do with the murder of Abner. Okay, so this is the last part of the chapter last week. Next, next um, slide. And the people who were in Judah, the people who were in Hebron, all knew that King David had no part to play in the murder of Abner. Okay, next slide. But the problem was that David was down here in the south in Hebron. I think you have to click one more time, sorry. The little thing is not working. Okay, whereas Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was in Mahanaim, which is up in the north. In those days, there was no newspapers, there was no internet, Twitter, Facebook, or Channel News Asia, or CNN. So, for all they knew up in Mahanaim was that Abner was dead. Abner had been murdered. And they didn't know how to interpret the murder of Abner. Uh, was David the murderer behind it all? Was David out for revenge? Was this the beginning of David's cruel and merciless reign where he would take out his enemies one by one? And it says there that Ishbosheth, on learning that Abner was murdered, well, literally it says that his hands became slack or his hands became weak and trembled. Our translation says that he lost courage. But literally, the picture is of someone's hand shaking, right? You know, imagine you're so nervous that you can't even hold your sword. Okay, that's how scared Ishbosheth was. And as a result, all Israel, the northern tribes, became terrified and they were alarmed. So as we look at the very first verse, it asks the question of today's passage, what sort of rule will King David implement? What is the king that God's king will be like? Will it be a kingdom of peace and justice or will it be one of murder and revenge? Well, it goes on. In verse 2 it says, Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Bana and the other one Recap. And they were sons of Remon the Berothite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitam and have resided there as foreigners to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old. And when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, as we, as we look to the very next verse, we, we introduced to this two interesting characters, and we don't really know why they're here. Right? Rechab and Bana. They don't seem to be very important people. They're not uh, the leaders of the army. They're not captains. They're not leaders of a, a clan. They're not leaders of a division. But rather it says that they're leaders of a raiding party. Now this word raiding party is kind of a very... Interesting word, right? It's neither a positive word or, or a negative word. It can mean a positive or a negative. But it's quite puzzling because the very last time that this word raiding party was used was back in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And it was used in a negative way then because it was a raiding party which had raided the camp of David and his men while they were away and took out and took away all their wives and women and children. Right? So you remember... In, in chapter one, verse uh, sorry, in chapter thirty of one Samuel, this Amalekite raiding party had come and attacked David's headquarters, 
And they had burned it and taken captives the women and all who were in it, both young and old. Right? So when we think of this word raiding party, it's kind of a very mixed word, right? Is it a positive thing? Or is it like pirates and Vikings and bandits? Right? So who are these two people? Are they good people or are they bad people? We're not really sure. But the thing that seems to be emphasized by the writer is that they come from the same tribe of Benjamin. Right? Same tribe of Benjamin. So next slide. So remember I said the important thing is not the facts, but what seems to be repeated over and over again. So the writer makes a big point about telling us that these two men, whether good or bad, come from the same tribe as Ishbosheth, Because his father, Saul, the next slide, in the book of Acts, comes from the book of, sorry, comes from the tribe of Benjamin. So we know that Recap and Bana, whether they're good or bad, they are the same blood, the same family as Ishbosheth the king. But now we're introduced to a fourth character, and this is Mephibosheth. And what is being emphasized to us is that they were lame. He was lame. Right? He, we don't actually. I, I always thought that he had broke his legs when he fell down, but I was corrected by the physiotherapist in my Bible study that he probably broke his back. Right, when he fell down. So if he had a physiotherapist then, he might be able to walk. But then he, he didn't have physiotherapy then. And he was lame. So literally, when you look at the line or the house of Saul, you're supposed to see the imagery. One has weak hands. okay, And the other one has weak legs. And it's meant to show us that something is weak or broken in the house of Saul. You see, you think about it this way. Uh, I know that we are, you know, people are telling us in the newspaper that Singaporeans are not very literary Singaporeans. You know, we, I think only, what, 50% of people read a literary book once a year or something. So the government is trying to get you all to read more, right? So I'm part of the campaign here. So, so what is the most, I was thinking, what is the most famous poem that we can remember, right? So Humpty Dumpty. Okay, so you all know Humpty Dumpty? No. Okay, see, that's why he's an aeronautical engineer. All right. So Humpty Dumpty is very straightforward. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. But it doesn't make much sense if it wasn't a poem, right? Because how can the horses put an egg together? Because, you know, horses don't have hands. So, what is, what, 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 why do you tell me that all the king's horses couldn't put the big egg back together? Because, you know, they only have hooves, right? But, you see, that's why when you read literature, it's not, you're not supposed to look at it factually. You're supposed to look at it literary. So, you're supposed to see that, okay, all of the king's resources, including the horses, couldn't put the, the, the egg back together. In the same way, we're supposed to see the same thing here. Okay, next slide. That the house of Saul is broken. The house of Saul is weak. You have one king who has trembling hands. You have another of the same line, the the last of the remaining line who cannot walk. So there is no power left. There is no hope left in the house of Saul. But then we move on in the story. And the story takes a very unexpected turn. 
So we now come back to recap and bana. <coughs> now recap and bana, the sons of Rimon the Burethite, set out from the house for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and his brother slipped away. Now again, it's so unexpected, right? Uh, again, from a literary point of view, it's like it begins so innocently. You just have these two brothers. They go and visit their relative, their blood relative, the king. They arrive there, it's noonday, it's very hot, it's very, you know, uh, conducive to sleeping. So everybody's resting, everybody's sleeping. They go into the palace <clears throat> because they're family members. Maybe they're going inside for iced lemon tea, but actually no, they're picking up groceries. And then bang, they st- you're told that they stab the king Ishbosheth in the stomach. Now, when you're reading it for the first time, it's so shocking and so surprising that you almost have to read the same sentence twice to get the full impact of what is happening here because you don't expect this to happen. I remember uh, reading a quote from the Singapore Book of the Year. I didn't read the book because I don't think it's a very good book, but um, it was quoted in some article on the internet about how the writer in the narrative writes about how in the woman, in the eyes of this woman, she's looking at this man and this She's noticing how, how attractive these, this man's eyes are and how attractive this man's features are. And she's looking at the blue sky. And then you're told that she's being raped by the man. Right? It's, it's like, it's very shocking, right? Because it's a, it's a contrast between the description of what you expect and then something that you're told later on. So here, as we read this, it's the same thing. You don't expect this to happen. They're just going to the house. Everybody's sleeping. All of a sudden, they stab their own relative in the stomach. And to repeat the effect, in verse 7, we are told and elaborated on more details. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed, in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. Now, here it elaborates on the viciousness of what happened. Not only was it in the afternoon, but he was lying down, the king, in his own bedroom, on his own bed. He deserves his dignity, his respect, his privacy, and two people, so usually two against one is not fair, but imagine two against one against a sleeping person who was a relative. How cold-blooded can it be? But not only do they stab him in the stomach, but they cut off his head. Now, I think that we are very immune to violence, you know, because, you know, you can watch cartoon. I, I watched some cartoon th- th- on TV the other day, and I realized actually cartoon is very violent these days or so, right? But could you imagine doing the same thing in real life to a real person? Going to your relative's house while they were sleeping, going to their bedroom, and then stabbing them in the stomach and cutting off their head. I mean, if it wasn't a movie or, you know, if it was real life, that would be very, very vicious. Imagine if someone did that to you. You are sleeping in your bedroom in the privacy of your own house during the day and two of your relatives come to your house to, on the pretense of visiting you 
come into your bedroom, stab you in the stomach and cut off your head. Okay, this is the level of what we're talking about. Okay, and this is not some Hollywood drama. This is real life. Well, that's what Recap and Bana are like. The story goes on in verse 8. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Now again here, we must pay attention to the words that are used and the way that it is being used. So here, Rechab and Bana come to David and they're very crafty with their words. The first thing they say is, look, hey, King David, here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. Now, is that really true? Was Ishbosheth really David's enemy? And did Ishbosheth really try to kill him? From what we've seen, yes, there are two armies who are at war, but we don't really see Ishbosheth as the one who is fighting and wanting to kill King David. They're just fighting for power. Remember over and over again, by this very point, next slide, the point that keeps being emphasized over and over again was how David and Abner, and true Abner to Ishbosheth, were at peace. They were at peace. They were at peace. And reading the very first word, verse, Ishbosheth couldn't kill David even if he wanted to because he had trembling hands. He was in great terror of David. So he really had no, nothing to fear from Ishbosheth, King David. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the movie, one of the movies that I really like, or one of the books that I really like, The Law of the Rings. And I'm sure that for those of you who've uh, seen Law of the Rings, uh, next slide, uh, next one, okay. or next one. Okay, I'm sure. Okay, if, if you if you don't know who this person is, you can speak to Carlson because Carlson is the expert on the Law of the Rings. And uh, you know, there's one scene at the I think it's uh, Law of the Rings, the Twin Towers, or the next one, and this guy called Grima Wormtongue. And what he does is he keeps whispering into the, the, the ear of the king, right, who is an ally to the good forces, forces of light. And he keeps telling him all these lies and all these uh, uh, fears. But all the time, he's not really looking after the interests of the king. He wants to seduce and to uh, take away the king's daughter. Right? I mean, if you can remember, that's good. If you can't, you can go and watch it again. But... That's exactly what's happening here. Because Rechab and Bana are, are trying to create in King David the fear of Ishbosheth and say, He was your enemy. He was trying to kill you and we're doing you a favor when actually there was no such thing. But it gets worse. Because in 8b, the second half of verse 8, they say, This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. They'd actually claim that they are agents of God and they are fulfilling God's will by killing Ishbosheth in such a cruel and merciless way. But does God really work in this way? Does God kill in cold blood? Does, do we see God working this way in David? Now, I think one of the problems for us is, I suppose, because we, because of time and, uh, you know, and things like that, we, we try to split up the book of Samuel over many, many 
periods. So it's, it's actually been a few years since we looked at uh, 1 Samuel, right? But if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 26, which I think was probably about a year ago, remember David actually had a chance to murder and kill King Saul. So let me read for you the whole thing. I'm, I'm sorry it's a bit long, but it's important for us to remember what happened there because David knows very clearly what God's will for him is in relation to the house of Saul. So remember they were at war, right? There was a battle and David and Abishai went to the army by night. In 1 Samuel 26. And there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and his sold, the soldiers were lying around him. So remember Abner? Yep. So even then he was, he was very loyal to King Saul. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew anything about it. Nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son. Because you have considered my life precious today, I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. In verse 22, Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, and I would, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Now, you can see very clearly from how David treated King Saul that it was very different in terms of his mercy, in terms of his understanding of how God would give him the kingdom. He understood that God would not give him the kingdom by cold-blooded murder. And that's why it is so, it's so repulsive that these evil, wicked men, Rechab and Bana, would use God's name in vain to justify their killing. Now, it reminds me of another movie I, I, told, uh, I, I told the PA guy that there's lots of movie references today. So, if you look at the next one. So have you all seen The Godfather? Yeah, I, I know some of these movies are very old, so I don't know whether some of the younger generation all these movies, but they are classics. Lah, okay? So The Godfather, uh, if you know, in part two, Michael Corleone, right? Okay, next slide. Uh, okay, El Pacino. Okay, he, he takes over his father's uh, mafia gang. And there's a very, very memorable scene, and I'm sure for those of you who've seen it, you'll remember The Godfather, where Michael Corleone is in the church, in the Catholic church, baptizing his children. Okay, so do, do you remember that? Okay, so he's baptizing And at the very moment that he is baptizing his children in the church, and everybody is being all holy, at the very same time, he is getting rid of all his rivals. 
you know, so one of them gets his throat, you know, uh, cut the throat, slit at the barber shop. Another one gets stabbed in the neck. Some people get machine gun. Some people get blown up, right? So it's like this contrast between the violence and the evil of Mark, Michael Corleone, but he has this cloak of religiosity over him that he's actually in mass getting his children baptized at the very same time. And I think that's exactly what is happening here with Recap and Bana. We know that they're evil, violent men of the worst kind, but they're using God as a cloak for their evil acts. So the question that we come to now is, how will David react? What will be David's rule? What will be David's justice? Well, there are a few ways David could respond. David could be gullible and fall for their lies and their sweet talk and reward them. Or maybe he will just accept them for what they did and, 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 and say thank you very much and reward them. Or maybe he will just turn a blind eye to what they did. But what does David do? In verse 9, David answered Recap and his brother Bana, the sons of Remon the Berotite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and put him to death at Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man, man in his own house and in his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb in Hebron. Now, David answers, and it shows that he is not hoodwinked or blinded or gullible. He knows, he sees through their actions and their speech. And remember why I said that it is important to pay attention to how things are said and not just what is said. The word that keeps being repeated here is the idea of a reward, right? The idea of seeking a reward. Because in chapter 1, when the Amalekite came and told King David that, his, that King Saul was dead and he had killed him, he wanted a reward. And here, David says that Rechab and Bana, they're, they're not here to protect David. They're not here to to serve God, they are just here for a reward. But the reward that they deserve is not the reward of power, money, or influence. But rather the reward that God will give them is consistent to God's justice, that blood demands blood. So if you look back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, blood, murder, will always demand justice for that blood. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood with your hand. In Deuteronomy, God told the people of Israel, but if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, then flees to one of these cities. The elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. 
Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. So here, what is the rule of King David? That murder, violence, blood must be punished and must be met by justice. Now for some of us, we, we, we find it a bit squeamish. Right? I, I know when I was reading in it, about it in the Bible study, we thought, wow, how come David's so barbarian? Huh? Cut off people's hands and legs and hang them, the body up by the pool, right? I mean, I don't, don't know what they do in the swimming pool, but you know, I, I like, can you imagine swimming there or going there to collect your water and you see this every day, right? While the body is rotting up there. But I think that it's actually to send a very clear message that this is the, 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 the standard of God's justice. That murder, wickedness and violence cannot coexist with God's anointed king. Now I remember when our, I read uh, Lee Kuan Yew's uh, memoir many years ago, The Singapore Story. And I remember part of it where he was recounting when the Japanese ruled Singapore, he said that there was no theft you could sleep with the door unlocked at night. And part of the reason was because if the Japanese caught you stealing, what they would do is they would cut off your head and they would impale the head on a stake and put it at the entrance of the, the village to warn people that they do not tolerate theft. And the message was loud and clear. Right? According to Lee Kuan Yew, people didn't steal anymore. And that's what's happening here, I think. That the message that King David was giving to his people that there was no place for wickedness, violence, or murder in his kingdom. Now, I think the application for us today is very important because we are living in a world where there is a lot of violence. Uh, there is a lot of injustice. There is a lot of wickedness which seems to go unpunished. You just have to turn on your television, read the newspaper, cruise the internet. There is a lot of violence, wickedness, and evil, which doesn't go punished. So recently, uh, someone, uh, I think I bought this book, I can't remember where I bought this book, I went to one of the uh, OMF, or I think Focus on the Family Talks, or I think it was a missions thing, I can't remember. Oh, I think one of the ladies came here. That's right, one of the ladies, missionary ladies from OMF came and spoke at our church, and she was selling these books, and I bought one of them. And it was called Escaping the Devil's Bedroom. And I remember reading it, and I felt that it was such a disturbing sad book to read because it talks about the millions of children, boys and girls, who are literally trapped and sold into sexual slavery around the world. And how politicians and businessmen and all that all conspire to keep them uh, in, in, in sexual slavery. So I remember watching this movie and uh, I, was, I, was, I sort of borrowed the book as well called Beasts of No Nation. And, and it's actually a fictional story, but it's based on reality of, of, of the child soldiers in Africa. And I remember reading about it and, and watching the movie of how there was a child who had Christian parents. And uh, the, the, the rebels came into the town and killed the father and the brother and abducted him and basically indoctrinated him and trained him to become a killer. And I always remember one scene in the movie, and I think it's in the book, I have to read the book, uh, I've ordered it again where he's forced to take a parang and the, the, the commander said, you must chop his head and cut his head like you break a watermelon. Right? 
And this person he was meant to kill was actually a university student who was sent out into the countryside to repair the bridge. And I was thinking, you know, this is the reality of the world that we live in. The violence, the wickedness, and the injustice. I remember when I was working in Australia as a liquidator for three and a half years, one of the saddest things that I came across was there was a, a, a man who was the owner of a small steel welding workshop. And we were sent to basically liquidate his company because he couldn't pay his bills. But after we did a bit of investigating, actually his business was doing really well. He was selling uh, steel fabricated things to the equivalent of IKEA. But then one night, uh, a group of vandals broke into his workshop. And uh, he employed about 10, I remember 10 people, you know, they were mainly Chinese people. So one night, a group of vandals broke into his workshop. They were either drunk or high on drugs. And they vandalized his workshop. They stole some money and uh, they peed all over his office and they pooed everywhere. But the, the worst thing that it was, they vandalized his equipment. So they destroyed his computer. They destroyed all his records, like burned them or something. So as a result, he couldn't collect his debts because he lost his records. So his cash flow dried up and he went broke. He made a police report, but the damage was done, right? And at the very end, I felt really sorry for him because he lost his business. Uh, the 10 Chinese workers didn't have a job. And as far as I know, the vandals were never caught. See, even in the world that we live in today, wicked things happen, evil things happen, terrible things happen, but people seem to get away. But I think that today's passage is an encouragement because King David is merely a shadow of the great King Jesus to come. And he, through King David, God instituted justice for his kingdom. But it was just a foreshadowing of the perfect justice that Jesus, God's King, will bring when he comes again. So we read the, the parable of the weeds in our responsive reading. And I think it's such a great encouragement because, let me read it again, because it shows that even though today we live with the weeds and the wheat together, but that one day, God through His Son will bring an accounting once and for all, for all things. Right, so Jesus says, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, which is Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So I think this passage tells for us very powerfully that God will, at the very end, deal once and for all with the problem of wickedness, sin and violence unpunished in this world. I think that's one of the problems with the prosperity gospel. You know, one of the problems with the prosperity Prosperity gospel is, it's always about feeling good, having blessings and health and wealth, but it doesn't meet 
the reality of wickedness and sin unpunished in this world. Because when you really see the reality of this world, you will know, even in your own life, as I have experienced in my own life, as I've seen among friends, and I'm sure you've experienced yourself in so many ways, that there is injustice and wickedness and violence and things that are unpunished in this world. But God tells us that we must wait in faith because when Jesus the King comes down, all those injustices, all that wickedness, whether in the fields of South Africa or, sorry, not Africa, I mean the in bigger parts of Africa, whether it's in the sex trafficking industry, whether it is in Singapore, in our society or wherever, that one day God will judge everyone. And as Jesus' people who are destined for his kingdom, we look forward to that day because we know that God will bring to justice all that is wrong in the world today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, help us to see that your word in 2 Samuel chapter 4 is not a movie, it's not just a short story, but it is reality, it is history. It is the reality of wickedness, bloodshed and mayhem gone wild. Where two blood relatives, two brothers would attack their king, their relative, in his own bedroom, in the middle of the day, in his palace, stab him in the stomach, cut off his head for the sake of getting a reward. Dear Father, that they would even use your name to justify what they did. But Father, we know that you are God who sees the motivations of men's hearts, who see the deepest parts of our soul, and that you are able to judge justly. And dear Father, as we have seen, so we know that in the future, when Jesus comes again, there will be perfect judgment and justice in this world. And that all wickedness, all sinfulness, all the vile violence in this world will be judged. That though we may despair when we see the wicked and the strong bullying and killing the weak, but yet we know, dear Father, that there will be a day when when you bring your kingdom to Jesus, all these things will be accounted for. So we pray for ourselves that we will not despair, that we will trust upon you, that we will look only to you and to know with confidence and wait upon that day where Jesus comes to bring your justice. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.